So this morning we are continuing on in our Perspectives teaching series here at Covenant. Uh, If you've not been here, this is a series where we're looking at um, one section of Scripture for five weeks. It's a well-known passage for many of us. We've heard Bible studies on it. We've probably heard messages about it. We've probably read it before in devotions. It's a story where Jesus is teaching in a home. The home is so crowded with people that some friends arrive who are carrying a buddy of theirs. This friend of theirs is paralyzed and has been paralyzed for quite some time, and they want to bring their paralyzed friend and to put him into the presence of Jesus to see what Jesus might do. But because the house is so crowded, they lift their friend up onto the roof of the house and literally tear the roof apart to then lower their paralyzed friend through the roof down into the presence of Jesus. Now, the reason we're looking at this for five weeks is because there's a mistake we can often make, which is to think that Scripture has an answer. There are more layers to Scripture than that. And one way we can get at these layers and see the depth that's there is to consider what is happening through the eyes and the perspectives of the different people that are there. We can learn something from each of them. For instance, we can learn something from the paralytic, which is where we start. What was this like for this paralyzed individual? To be carried up onto the roof of the house, to have that roof torn apart, to be lowered down into the presence of Jesus. And what can you and I learn? As people who are united in this room, no matter how we look, no matter how successful we are, or who are united by the simple proclamation that we are broken and need a Savior too. And what can we learn about the gospel? from the perspective of this paralyzed one. We also said in the second week, what was it like to understand this through the eyes of the friends? We talked about the miracle of friendship. What it was like to be the kind of friend that will tear the roof off a building for someone. To ask ourselves the question, are you that kind of friend to anybody? And do you have those kinds of friends in your life? In a world where we are increasingly isolated, where we are increasingly alone and lonely, studies show, the answer for an increasing number of us is no. We do not have friendships like this in our life, but how can we begin to cultivate that as part of the gospel, the good news? We looked last week from the perspective of the homeowner. What was it like to have the, be the one whose roof was torn apart? And what can that, when we think about our money, when we think about our possessions, when we think about our stuff that we worry so much about, how can this perspective of the homeowner liberate us, in a sense, to the fullness of living in the gospel? And today, the second to last week of this series, we are actually going to be considering a perspective that for many of us might be the most challenging on the surface. We will be considering what the gospel has to say to us and how you and I can be formed if we consider the perspective of the Pharisees. The scripture that we're going to be reading starts in verse 20, just after the paralytic has been lowered through the roof into the presence of Jesus. And I invite you to listen to God's word to us all this day. When he saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, who is this who is speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their questions, he answered them, why do you raise such questions in your heart? 
Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, stand up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to, for, to forgive sins, he said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, stand up and take your bed and go to your home. Immediately he stood up before them, took what he had been lying on, and went to his home, glorifying God. Amazement seized all of them, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen strange things today. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here today, we would hear your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as I said, today we're going to be considering these events from the perspective of the Pharisees. Now, I think that part of the reason that this can initially be so challenging is we sort of treat the Pharisees like the New Testament is sort of Star Wars, right? And in Star Wars, it's really clear who the good guys are, and it's really clear who the bad guys are. If you're a fan of Star Wars and the great music of John Williams, you know, there's that that imperial march where it's like, dun, 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 dun. When anyone hears that, no one's going, oh, the good guys are coming, right? We all know that Darth Vader's showing up. And, and, and it's not going to be a good thing. And so we can easily see the Pharisees or when they appear in the Gospels and we almost hear that music. It's like, oh, here are the bad guys, right? And, and because they're always doing this, they're always questioning Jesus, they're always debating Jesus, they're always, always kind of posing problems to Jesus. They actually are part of the ones who organize the crucifixion of Jesus. But I don't want us to make the mistake of thinking that life is like Star Wars and these are the bad guys. The Pharisees are the religious leaders of their day. And whether we like the term or not, we are religious people. And if we don't think that there is overlap of the Pharisees in our life, then we are not actually paying attention. And so what I want us to do today is to consider the perspective of the Pharisees, what it can teach us and how it can actually liberate us. To embracing the fullness of the gospel. So first off, let's talk about who the Pharisees are. Who are they besides the bad guys? Well, the Pharisees were people who were there to uh, maintain and to protect the temple system. And the temple system might not mean a lot to us, but the temple system was where God dwelt. God's dwelling place was the temple. And so all the presence of God and all the authority of what it meant to be the people of God rested in the temple. The temple was the central part of Jewish life at the time. And so when you were there to maintain and to preserve the temple system, you had Uh, almost unlimited authority. Now, what the Pharisees specifically were supposed to do is that they were people who were meant to interpret the Torah, the law of Moses that had been given hundreds of years before, and to interpret how to apply it to their modern times. Okay, In a sense, and there are problems with this analogy, but just so it makes sense for us, the Constitution in this country was written hundreds of years ago. What the courts really try to do today is to give a sense of how do we apply the Constitution to our modern world today, right? And they interpret that. We might agree or disagree with how they interpret it, but that's their role. That's their function. The Pharisees in some ways were the same. There was the law of Moses that was written hundreds of years before, but how do you apply it to these modern times? They got to interpret that and say, here's how it works. 
Now, again, because of the temple system and because that's where God dwelt, everything in Jewish life flowed through the temple system. So in our country, in our culture, we separate. Uh, we don't want too much power in one place. So we separate politics over here and government over here. And then we have economics over here. And then we have like social life over here. And then we have religious life over here. We don't trust all of that being in one place. In the temple system, the Pharisees were really controlling all of that. Everything flowed through them. So economics, as much as the Romans allowed them to, to, to influence it, uh, politics, social life, religious life, they got to interpret all of that in saying what is right or wrong. They had enormous power and influence in this day. Now, what's also interesting about the Pharisees, and we need to know this, is how you become a Pharisee. The way you become a Pharisee is you're not born into it. This isn't the house of lords. Uh, the Pharisees are people who proved their worth over time from when they were very young. They were the best of the best. They were the ones whose parents were posting on social media, I'm so proud of, of you know, so-and-so because of the accomplishments. Parents would look at their kids and like, if you really, really work hard, if you, you know, really put, you maybe could be like them someday. They were the best of the best. They were celebrated. They were uh, told that this system is how God works. And then after they were rewarded above anyone else for their merit, what they were told is now your job is to take the baton. For hundreds of years, the temple system has worked. And now it's your time to maintain and to preserve that system where God is at the center of it. They had been told their whole lives, this is how God works in this system. And now they were being told, you're the best ones and have the authority to make that system work. We love systems as human beings. I actually had thought about it in this sermon to have someone in the choir just jump up in the middle of the sermon and start singing a song and to watch the reaction of everyone. We're like, no, 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 this isn't the time. The hymn of response. It happens here. You have to let, there's a system to this. You don't get to jump. And when you sing, you sing that song. You don't get to make up what song you want to sing. There's a way that this happens. We do this all the time. And there are people in leadership whose job it is not to let this just kind of devolve into chaos. Those are the Pharisees. I want us to see that, yes, I'm sure there were some like bad people who were just power-hungry Pharisees. Most of them were doing exactly what they had been trained to do. Because Jesus is a nobody. Jesus didn't go to the right. Mary and Joseph weren't able to go, oh, I'm so proud of little Jesus, like, uh, like national, whatever. Like, no, that he didn't do. He didn't go any of the schools. He didn't have any of the recognition. He hadn't gone through any of the training. He, he, like, there was no authority that gave him the right to teach the way he was. When the Pharisees here hear him say, God, is, your sins are forgiven you, and they say only God can do that, they're not making that up because they're mean. That's in the Bible. They're quoting the Bible. They're doing their job. They're being faithful in their eyes. We need to, we need to empathize. We need to recognize how this exists in us, in our church, in our society, in our individual lives. Pharisees were doing exactly what they had been trained to do and been told from when they were babies.
that this is what's right and this is how it works. Now, what we know, of course, with hindsight is that the Pharisees miss what God's doing in the midst of them. I'm not trying to say that, they're, that we should emulate them, but we are needing to understand what's going on and who they are. They're not, and not just say, oh, well, they're the evil ones. To understand what's going on with the Pharisees, I actually want to use something uh, that was written by Andy Crouch and devised by Andy Crouch. He calls it a two-by-two matrix. Uh, And this matrix, some of you may have seen, it comes from a book of his that uh, is really wonderful called The Strong and the Weak. And this is a book that's on human flourishing. How do human beings flourish? We're going to bring the matrix uh, up here now. Uh, It is um, a, a visual image of how human societies flourish. And Andy Crouch writes from both a biblical perspective, but includes a lot of science and a lot of data. And the question he asks is, how do human beings flourish? Now, I want you to know when you see this, uh, when I start talking about vertical axes and horizontal axes and quadrants, uh, any math teacher I had in school would be very nervous right now. Um, when I told my wife last night I was using this, she was like, you are using vertices in the sermon. She goes, I'm not certain when I can remember being this nervous. She goes, why don't you just tell them a story? And it's like, no, I I think that this can illustrate it well. Um, What Andy Crouch does is he says that every single one of us in this room, but every society fits in one of these four quadrants. And that human flourishing is only found in one. It's found in quadrant number one there when it's up and to the right. Now, to understand this quadrant, or to understand any of them, you have to understand these two vertices. The first vertice, both of these are important. The first vertice is what he defines as authority. And we're going to get to the definition in just a second. But authority is not a bad thing. We all need it to flourish, he says. And that is, I can impact the world. It's the things that we tell our children. You can change the world, right? And and you've got to have some degree of agency in your life. The horizontal axis is what he defines as vulnerability. Now, normally, we think of these as opposed to each other. If I have authority, I'm not vulnerable. The people that are vulnerable are the ones who don't have authority, right? But what Andy Crouch says is that when you look at human flourishing, when you look at what science tells us about people who are fully alive, when you look at the Bible, they're not opposed. They actually are both necessary. Now, let's get to the definitions real quick. First, the definition of that vertical axis, authority. Human beings naturally seek this. And again, I want you to hear this. This is a good thing. We need this to flourish. And we naturally want this. It's the capacity for meaningful action. It's about how much we can make a difference in our world. We have the ability to affect change in some kind of way. And you need that to flourish. That's authority. The second one is the one that I want us to spend a particular uh, time paying attention to today. And this is vulnerability. This is the horizontal axis. Horizontal axis vulnerability is we've got to see this. Humans naturally avoid this. We don't like being vulnerable. And we don't celebrate it very much as a society. Exposure to meaningful risk. A vulnerability that requires risk, which is the possibility of loss. The chance that when we act, we will lose something we value. Vulnerability, according to Andy Crouch, is willingness to take risks that could endanger what we have or the status we've gained. It could mean loss. Let's go back to the matrix. To be flourishing, what we need to see, to be in quadrant one, you need to be someone who has authority in your life, has control, you can, you can impact change, you can make decisions for yourself, that's important, 
But there are moments where we will choose to risk something rather than just maintain what we've got. Now, let's look about this in this passage. We're going to keep this up here, but let's consider this because I want this to make sense to us today from the different perspectives we looked at. First off, let's consider this matrix from the perspective of the paralytic, the paralyzed man. It, now, he's the one on the, on the vertical scale of authority. We don't know how much authority he has here. We don't know if he asked to be take to, taken to Jesus. We don't know if his friends just were like, you're going. Right? And, and lift him. We, we're not certain. We don't have data on this. We're not certain about where the paralytic is on, on the vertical axis. But on the horizontal one, is this individual vulnerable? Is there risk? Absolutely there is. There's physical risk of what would take him. Is he uh, in his physical state is being lowered through a height through the floor? I mean, through the roof to the floor. There is a risk of all of those eyes on them of what that will be like. And there is probably the ultimate risk that there is no telling what Jesus is going to do. And maybe this is his last hope. And what happens when you lose that? There's an enormous risk and vulnerability in the paralytic. But that vulnerability is necessary for the miracle to happen. Do you see that? Or take the friends. They rank high in authority. They are able to impact things. They are able to make decisions. They're able to pick up their friend, and when they can't get him to Jesus, they take him up on the roof. They don't ask anybody's permission, and they tear up the roof of the house and to lower them in. They are able to affect change in some kind of way. Are they vulnerable? Absolutely they are. What happens when the homeowner sees their roof coming apart? What happens when you lower your friend in front of Jesus? And just like what might happen to your friend if Jesus doesn't do something? You might actually endanger your friendship and your relationship. They don't send anyone to Jesus going, hey, if we do this, are you going to do, are you going to heal him? They take a risk. But the miracle can't happen if they don't. You see that? The flourishing involves both. Or take the homeowner, as we talked about last week. The homeowner has authority. And the beautiful part of the homeowner is they don't exercise it. They don't demand that the roof be put back together. They don't demand that the friends stop on the roof. And are they vulnerable because of that? Yes, because it rains. And nobody here describes how the rebuild happens. There is a risk that the homeowner allows to happen. And if the homeowner had chosen to exercise their authority and not have risk, the miracle doesn't take place. Flourishing happens up and to the right. Do you see this? Now, what are the Pharisees? It's not just the bad guys. On the vertical scale of authority on this matrix, they, from a human perspective, have all of the authority. Nobody has more here. But the problem of the Pharisees that you and I need to pay attention to is that they rank very low on vulnerability. They cannot conceive of a system where God would work outside of their rules because it would cost them something. They would lose their privilege. They would lose their authority. They would lose the temple system, which is how God makes sense and everything is predictable. And when you rank high on authority, Andy Crouch says, but you'll see low on vulnerability, you move from quadrant one to quadrant four, which is how exploitation takes place. It's the origins of injustice because you have to then start working to maintain your control and manipulating things to have your control. And that can mean all kinds of things, including setting up a kangaroo court during Passover and lying about a carpenter's son from Galilee to have him put away with because what he's doing and saying and teaching 
would mean great loss for you and for the system that you have been trained to protect. You see that? People who flourish, societies who flourish, rank high in terms of authority, but they choose to risk it at times so that God can do even more than what they can ask or imagine. They are willing to let go and to be holy risk takers. We see this in the Bible over and over again. We see this in Genesis when Abram is called with Sarai to venture out and to be the mother and father of many nations. And in their old age, they say, this is great. How do we do it? And God says, all you're going to do is leave the city that you know and venture out into the wilderness where you don't know anybody. And trust me, when you're out there, something miraculous is going to take place and you're going to become the mother and father of many nations. And I am certain that Abram and Sarai had all kinds of neighbors and friends who were going, you are out of your mind for doing this. And yet... They don't just hold on to that authority and play it safe. They are vulnerable and risk something at the call of God. And it is in that vulnerability that they flourish and that the miracle takes place. We see this with Moses in Exodus where he is run and is hiding from uh, Pharaoh because uh, his life is wanted. And God appears to Moses and says, I am going to free the slaves after 500 years in Egypt. And Moses says, yes, how are you going to do that? And God says, you're going to go. And you're going to be my mouthpiece to say into the courts of Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses goes, absolutely not. I don't have the gifts. And by the way, I'm on their most wanted list there. If I show back up, I'm going to die. And God says, you are the one. Trust me to go. And Moses, the amazing part is he chooses vulnerability and risk. And miracles take place and the world changes. We see this in the New Testament. The first sermon series I ever preached here at Covenant was about uh, the Apostle Peter when the storm is on the boat and the sea and the waves are crashing and Jesus is walking on the water and calls Peter to come and join him. And while the 11 boat, boat potatoes are cowering in the boat in fear, which is very understandable at all that could be lost, Peter swings his legs over the side of the boat and stands up a moment of unbelievable vulnerability. And yet in choosing that, in letting go and in risking something, he experiences what it's like to join Jesus in walking on a liquid surface. And we see this most powerfully in Jesus himself, don't we? Who has ultimate authority, cosmic eternal authority, and yet lays all of that aside and is betrayed and nailed to a cross. And as he has laid that authority aside in his most vulnerable place and is dying on a cross and screams out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he dies, our creed says he descended into hell, a place of ultimate suffering and distance from God. He does it in the vulnerable place of risking that and the promise that on the third day God's going to do something. And we know that the tomb is empty and we know that salvation in this world and the world to come are real because Jesus was willing to go there. And flourishing for you and me in this world and the next comes because he chose to do that. This is the choice that is before us. We must be holy risk takers at times in our life or we will live a normal, small, angry, pathetic, controlling existence where we will see nothing of miracles in our lives, but just predictability and stress as we hold on to it one day to the next. There's something better 
than living this way. We must be holy risk takers. We must be that kind of church. Some of you may have seen this week an article that Duke Divinity School wrote on the Love Letter Fund. It was this really cool thing, and I loved reading the story about it. But, but, but and if you haven't seen it, you can, you can go find it on our website or social media. But part of what's important about the Love Letter Fund, outside of the cool thing that it's actually doing, is that this ter- church took a chance on something. They took a chance on something that's like, well, is it discipleship or is it mission or is it evangelism and where does it fit in and how does our strategic plan? We're like, we don't really know. We don't really know, but we think God's calling this into existence. And it wasn't reckless. We had 78 different committees because we're Presbyterians that looked at it and prodded on it and poked at it and prayed about it. But in the end, this church put its resources behind something saying, let's just lower somebody through the roof and see what happens. And that is so important because churches and institutions do not do this well. Because we control and we strategize and we make certain things and that's good, but sometimes we have to let go and risk. We have to be holy risk takers. And you have to do that as well. I'm gonna end with this. I love this story. There was a story I heard recently of a, of a guy that's uh, here at this church and is part of one of our men's Bible studies. And as part of this Bible study, uh, after the teaching, after the lesson, there's a time of kind of sharing among some of the different uh, folks who were there. This guy had attended this Bible study for several years. And he said, I, you know, he goes, I would answer how you can pray for me. Busy at work, blah, blah, blah. Doesn't really mean anything. He said, you know, I, I, I have deep dysfunction in my family. It is painful, the brokenness in my family. I know he's the only one. <laughs> and he said, it's become so normative that I kind of didn't ask for prayers about it because I don't even know where to start. It's just so much a part of my life. And I'm also pretty ashamed of it. He said, but in this series, I've been thinking about, been thinking about what it means to realize that what I've become is the paralytic. I've become so used to this brokenness that it's just part of my life every day. It's just kind of who I am. It's just the burden I carry. And so a couple of weeks ago, when we came to the time of asking how we could pray for each other, he said, for the first time in years, I've been sharing prayer requests with this group for years, never told them anything about the pain. He said, I finally answered the question, here's how you can pray for me. He said, I'm not certain I've ever been that scared in my life. To name it out loud and to be seen. And he said that when I finished, these guys came around me. They lay hands on me. And they prayed for me. And they're walking with me. He said, I'm being lowered through the roof into the presence of Jesus right now. And I have no idea what's going to happen. But he said, you know what? God's doing something. He risked and was vulnerable when he didn't need to be. And that's when the miracle shows up. May we be holy risk takers. The path of the Pharisees is a very natural and seductive path to take. May we be willing to risk in the belief that it is there that we will flourish. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, lead us, guide us, be with us. We pray this as your people. Bring us to life.
in Jesus' name. Amen.